I, uh, my name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm glad to see you this morning. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. And um, as you're turning there, let me say a word, and I'll, it'll be a, a word, a quick word, and then I'll move on. But I, um, listen, I feel burdened. I'm, I feel concerned um, about Bethel. Uh, and our gatherings on Sunday morning becoming super spreader events. And so I have uh, gone back to wearing a mask uh, when I can indoors. And I, I'll tell you what has precipitated that. The calls and the emails and the stories uh, that I have had this week from doctors and nurses and that work here in this town and go here to this church, and uh, I, I tell you what, what I hear from them is that this is a difficult time, maybe the most difficult time they've ever seen, more so than even back in December and January and February. And I would also say this, that um, I realize when I talk about masks from up front that everybody's got an opinion about it, and I, and I totally get that. I'm, I'm I know I can't change your opinion. I would say, if you'd allow me, as a leader, there was no course in seminary about leading a church through a pandemic. It is, it is leadership on the fly. And the reality is that at all the places where, um, you know, things are, are, are difficult or... Um, it, listen, this exposes um, all the ugly parts of living life on planet Earth around other people. And uh, it, we see that everywhere. So here's the, here's the thing. I appreciate your grace to me. I appreciate your grace to those around you and would ask you to um, pray for our health care professionals. Um, there are a lot of them that go to Bethel and are across our campuses. And this is a season like they have never known. So our prayers for them would be great. Which leads me to this. The church in a time like this, a church in 2021, it, it may very well be that God in his providence Brought, to, brought the church to a place like this, given us this need and an opportunity, a challenge to, to lead us into places of sacrifice, although I know we don't like the word, places of faith, to, to give us an opportunity this last year, this last 18 months, to loosen our grip on lots of things, hopefully loosen our grip on the world. It also may be that we're at a place as believers to correct some of our views about the church. I said a little bit of this last week and then even the week before that, you know, the church has been something that for the last 2,000 years it has had a purpose of mission set forth by Christ. We, we're his bride. 
And the truth is that the church is the hope of the world. And, and we, we say it, and yet I, a lot of times we don't believe that fully, and I understand why. But it is a truth that as believers, we must embrace. We must live that truth. We, we must, as believers, reorient our minds and our co commitments uh, around and to that which, which Jesus has said, this is my plan for the world. See, sometimes we give our hearts to things other than Jesus. We, we do that lots of the time. Because if we're, if we're honest... We can give our hearts to lots of things, and we can give our hearts on our own terms. See, the truth is, your relationship with Christ, it's, you don't get to engage in that relationship on your terms. It's sanctifying, it's requiring, it's conforming, it's transforming. All those things are words used to, to talk about this relationship we have with Christ. It is something that continually is in the process of changing us and ground zero for our relationship with Jesus is the church. And who we are begins and ends with Jesus. So, real quickly, I'll remind you, we've talked about, you know, define, well, what is the church? We, we've tried to define it over the last several weeks. I'll tell you again, um, th this is what we've said, it, it, that the church, well, this is what the New Testament says, the church is the people of God. We're the body of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of the kingdom. In the midst of a sinful and rebellious world, we're a people who belong to God, we've been purchased by the blood of His Son. The Bible says we're His possession, we're His treasure. We're the bride of the eternal Son, Jesus. And we're cared for by the elders and deacons, life group, all those that He's called to care for us and watch over us. And the mission of the church, like what we're supposed to do, so that's who we are, what we're supposed to do, what, what the church exists for is to go into the world, to proclaim this good news of Jesus to all of creation, call people to faith, to believe Him, that we'd make disciples and glorifying God through His Son, Jesus Christ. We do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in doing that, we would bear the fruit of of the kingdom of God, and we would increase in the knowledge of God. That's why we're here. And the, the purpose of all that, the New Testament says, is so that Jesus is worshipped and, and exalted to the glory of God the Father, and that God's saving power would be known to the ends of the earth. And when we talk about a vision of Bethel Bible Church, or sort of our, our local contextualization of what the church has always been and has always been doing, that's what we mean. Well, how do we do that here? 
Well, I told you, we've got a vision statement, and we look at that. We look at that often. We make decisions based upon what we've said we'll do to contextualize these timeless truths about the church, and they are that we want to be growing communities, multiplication and discipleship. We want to be building leaders. We think a great deal about, we, we think the New Testament cares a great deal about our leadership and our influence, how we use our influence in this world as believers, and that we'd be people who live generously, joyfully one-anothering each other. Well, this morning, I want to talk about building leaders, but leadership, influence. I like influence probably best. And when, when I say that, I'm, I'm talking about the reality that if you're here this morning, or you're watching online with us this morning, that as a believer, you have a ministry that you're called to, a, a lifestyle of ministry that you're called to. Listen, you've been saved. You're gifted by the Holy Spirit for a purpose. You've been given gifts of God, a portion of His very grace, for a purpose. Not, not necessarily even for you, but for those around you. you. You have a context within which to do that. The church and your neighborhood and this region, this, this is where you live, where your gifts are to be used. And you have a purpose because God is doing something in your life. Listen. God is doing something in your life. And what he's doing, he's doing for a reason. And those reasons are for his purpose and for his glory. And you can, you can count on that it's for your good and for the good of those he brings into your life. That there are three parts of what I want to look at in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. One, there's a calling on your life for which you're being transformed. That's the first one. Second thing, you're qualified for the calling on your life. But it's not how we usually think about it. And thirdly, if you were an 80s band then it's much more tears for fears than it is Slayer, okay? That's the third point. Hope we get to it. All right. Look at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to walk you through these verses. I'm gonna, let's read the first six verses, and then we'll, we'll talk through them, and we'll, then we'll look at the rest of the chapter. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with, with ourselves as servants 
for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the ministry that you've been called to, that there's a calling on your life for which, Paul will say, you're being transformed. See, you're not saved as, as part of some heavenly quota. Okay? This is not why you're saved. I mean, you're not just, not just a number. You're not just like heaven's trying to make its quota and that's why you were saved. You also weren't saved because we're trying to make a quota here. This is not why you were saved. That you were saved because there's a calling on your life and, 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 and you're being transformed for that calling. And that calling, ultimately, he says, look, it is to grow in this knowledge of God as we look into the face of Christ. That transforms us. That's what, that's what chapter 3 was all about. He said, listen, this ministry, it's a new covenant ministry. It's a ministry of glory as opposed to a ministry of death. It's a ministry of righteousness, a ministry of right standing with God. It's not a ministry of condemnation. It's a ministry of hope. It's a ministry of transformation. In verse 2, here's one of the things he says, and it's pretty startling. He's saying, and this ministry is not necessarily for personal use. You, it's not something, one, that you can get secondhand. It is truth the truth of God poured through your life. And, 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 and then it works itself out. So Christianity is not a bunch of slogans to, to know or to borrow from a speaker or a book or a song. That's not how Christianity works. People who build their brand. I, this is so crazy to me. I, I would love to just sit and rant about this for 30 minutes, but I'd get a call from all my elders. But somehow, somewhere, Christianity got turned into this platform for celebrity. Like if I can post some good Christian stuff, you know, some inspirational stuff, then I get more likes and more people follow me. And it becomes this, like, part of our brand. That is so nauseating. Are you nauseated by that? Doesn't it make you just want to vomit everywhere? You know? It's not for your personal use. It should drive you crazy. It drove Paul crazy. He already said in chapter 2, he said, unlike so many, this is, I, there th I, told, I was telling the elders, I, I've been reading 2 Corinthians, spending this time in it. I, it blows my mind. I cannot believe Paul says some of the things that he says in this. It's so personal and honest. He tells them in chapter 2, unlike so many, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, and those sent from God, as those sent from God. Is it possible to shape your message? 
shape your Christian life to increase your profit, your personal influence, your personal profit, your brand. Paul was faced with the temptation. He rejected it. And he also says one more, and this is just funny. I, this, I'm telling you this one because it's funny. In chapter 11, verse 20, he says to them, in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. You're, he's, I can't believe it. You're willing to put up with all kinds of nonsense. And then he says with sarcasm dripping from his pen, to my shame, I admit I was too weak for that. I didn't have what it took to do that. I'll refer to you, if you, if you haven't listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, that podcast, Christianity Today's producing, I commend it to you wherever you listen to a podcast. But verse 3, Paul had his critics. They were saying, look, Paul makes the gospel complicated. He confuses everybody can't understand what Paul says. That's what they're trying to say. They're trying to win favor for themselves and put Paul down. And Paul says, look, even if, if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Paul was committed to the truth of God's word in his life, even if it wasn't popular. This ministry that you have, you've been called to, saved to, gifted for, put in a context for it's a mercy of God to you. And then he also says in these verses 4 through 6, you, you actually, not only have you been saved for this ministry, this calling, you, you actually were drafted into a war. In verse 4, the, the case of the God of this world, he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. Who he's talking about is Satan. The one who's the prince of the power of the air. The one in whom when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were born dead in our trespasses. We were, we were born into the kingdom of the enemy. And there is this enormous influence that the power that the, the devil assumes, this enormous influence and power that he assumes on the earth. And so when Paul says there in verse 5, we don't preach ourselves because if we had to preach ourselves, if we made this thing, Christianity, about us, that's devilish. We proclaim Jesus. And then in verse 6, he gives us this picture. It's a callback to Acts chapter 9, and it's his conversion. Let, let the light shine out of darkness. Remember on the road to Damascus, Paul, he's blinded by the light. It was to show him how that he really was in darkness. And then God has given us light, and we're to reflect what it is that he's given us. And most of us, we encountered the life of Christ through the reflection of someone else's life. You, as you gaze into The face 
of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that light that you see is to be reflected. Most of us, we came to the knowledge and understanding that Jesus is our Savior. We were drawn by the reflection of someone else as they gazed into the light. Now, now not only are you called, but but I want you to see in in these next verses, Paul's going to say you're qualified, but it's not how you think you are. Let me just read some of these verses. We'll go back. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, and this was written back in Psalm 116, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Here's essentially what Paul's saying. For this ministry that you're called to, you actually are equipped, but it is not the way that you think you are. You are equipped. Weaknesses and failures exist to demonstrate God's glory. So say, listen, here's what you are. You are a jar of clay. And when you were saved, the contents of the greatest treasure of eternity was poured into you. It's this sharp distinction between what's happening on the outside and what's happening on the inside. The value of the treasure, not the value of the vessel. Power comes in our lives from what's placed inside of us. The power has nothing to do with who we are. We are jars of clay. It is meant to mean without the treasure in us, we're not really good for anything. So much of us spend so much time trying to, you know, dress up the clay, make it look fine and good and valuable, and it's nothing. It's just clay. What's valuable about us is what's deposited in us. And the whole point of the image is silly. It's meant to be silly. Listen, I was given, um, I was, a couple of years ago, someone gave me 
of a very rare Bible. I'm kind of a Bible nerd. I collect Bibles. But this is rare. This is an unparalleled. It's a, it's a 1586, 82, 86. 15, it's 100, 450 years old. Before the King James. Geneva Bible. In really outstanding condition. And here's what's so funny. When the person that gave it to me gave it to me, they handed me a big white trash sack. Said, I have something for you. And then handed me a big white trash sack. And I'm thinking, great, they gave, just gave me their trash. Until I looked inside. Listen, that's all we are. We're white trash sacks. It's what we're filled with that brings value. This afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. Paul's using all this language. Listen, we, we, we're fighting this deal. It requires endurance. But it's not permanent. It's not final. Affliction and being perplexed and despair and persecution. All those things, that's not final. It will not ultimately do us in, even though we endure it for a while. In fact, those things that we are enduring are actually part of what is qualifying us for what it is that we are called to. And in verses 11 and 12, he's talking about death and life. We're crucified with him, and, and it's when we're crucified with him, we see his glory. When we die to self, we experience more of his life. We can't have one without the other. They hang together. So Paul, he sums it all up in verse 12. Daily exposure to all these forces that are beating down on us. Paul calls death. Alongside that comes this continual showing up of the life of Jesus. And it doesn't just sustain us. It works through us, and it brings life to others. The, the jar of clay, which is my life, constantly being pursued by destruction. But the treasure inside of the jar of my life, and it's constantly spilling out. That's called ministry. And yet it never diminishes. That's, what's, that's the power of it. Too many of us, we spend too much time as jars trying to protect the jar. The value is, is the treasure. It's what spills out when life knocks us around. The more and more focus that's placed on the jar, the power and the blessing inside the jar, they're diminished. They're not being used for what they're for. We, we too often strive for clay-type influence rather than treasure influence. What matters more is what we lose, what we give up, what we sacrifice, what we set aside in this life, because that correlates 
to the good for others now and in God's economy. His eternal scheme, loss now, sacrifice now, is gain for eternity. It's an investment in eternity. And so in verse 13, he says, look, this isn't new. We share an ancient faith in an eternal hope. And that ancient faith in an eternal hope extends God's grace into the future. That's why he goes all the way back to Psalm 116. I think Paul's got this open. If you went back and you read that, it would read very much like 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have that same spirit of faith. That those who belong to Christ and those who are in Christ, and at the same time we're in Christ, we're walking through the perils and the dangers and the hardships of this present age, and we're just getting knocked around by it, but Paul's vision of that is is that when we do that, treasure spills out on the people around us. It's the ministry we're called to, the ministry we're equipped for. I'll tell you this story about a kid. I've told it once before, but it's been a long time. It was a friend of mine, high school friend of mine, when I was, um, I worked for Young Life staff, and his name was Joe Wilson. He was a sophomore at Charles Page High School in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And I say he was a friend of mine. That's really generous. Joe Wilson drove me crazy. He wasn't my favorite high school friend. And he came to me. He was the first person that signed up for the summer camp we were going to in North Carolina. And I thought, oh, great. Probably it's going to be me and Joe. Fortunately, it wasn't. A bunch of Joe's friends came. He was popular that way. He'd bring people. But man... All he lived for was just making my life an absolute aggravation. Well, we got to camp, and, um, you know, you got 15 high school guys in a sweaty, nasty cabin. That's nice as far as cabins go, but after a few days, that place gets pretty toxic. So they have a deal called cabin cleanup. Well, cabin cleanup day is nobody's favorite, but they make it fun. You make a game out of it. Anyways, what Joe does, what Joe always did, he went up to the third bunk, climbed up there, pulled the covers over, went to sleep, let all his buddies clean the deal. And that made me mad. And I was like, Joe, you got to come down. He's like, man, I don't feel good. I don't care if you don't feel good. I don't care if you're dying. Get down here. He wouldn't do it, he wouldn't do it, and I got mad. So I climbed up there, grabbed him by the shirt, and I pulled him down off the third bunk. Landed on the floor. Cried out in pain. I knew he was faking. So I said, all right, I'll tell you what. Marched him up, got him up, marched him all the way across this camp in North Carolina, across the hills and through the woods, to the medic's office. Just to prove that he wasn't sick and I was right. And we walked in there. He got up on the table. The medic began feeling around on him. He said, man, I'm so glad you brought him in here. He has acute appendicitis. 
I said, well, that's why I brought him here. <laughs> I knew that. Took him to the hospital. He ends up having an emergency appendectomy. His mom flies in from Oklahoma to be there with him. And I am telling the Lord, look, I'm really sorry that he got appendicitis, but I'm not sorry that he's leaving. To my shock, he comes out of surgery that evening. He's like, hey, Doc said I can leave tomorrow and I want to come back to camp. I'm like, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't come back to camp. That's a terrible idea. But he did, he insisted, and his mom said, hey, I'm going to come back to camp too. Now, let me tell you how much the jar doesn't matter in this relationship and how much the treasure matters in this relationship. I'm the jar Jesus is the treasure. You know what the jar's doing? The jar's finding every possible way I can think of to get rid of this kid. The treasure is working against me trying to find every way that this kid can get in front of the gospel of Jesus. And at the end of the week, Joe's, Joe ends up getting saved, and so does his mom. Not to my glory, in some ways to my shame. And God decided, you're the sorry, no good, ugly pot I'm going to use. I'm going to spill my treasure out all in the midst of it. Just a couple of years ago, we went to family camp in Colorado. It was a Young Life family camp, took our family and did all that stuff. Kid walks up to me and goes, are you Ross Strader? I said, yeah. He goes, man, I'm on Young Life staff. Just came on Young Life staff. Joe Wilson was my Young Life leader. And I got saved at a high school club. And then two kids that were from this guy's club were there working on work crew, and they said, I can't believe we got to meet you. I'm like, well, what? So, yeah, you, you were there when Joe got saved, and, 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 we're, and I'm like, Oh, I'm ashamed. <laughs> Has nothing to tweet about or build a brand on. So you're called to a ministry you may not even know about. You're being prepared in ways you may not even know about. Because God means to rattle your clay jar in such a way that that treasure spills out on the lives of people around you. And just so you know, if your calling's an 80s band, you're more Tears for Fears than you are Slayer. Both of them formed in 1981. Both of them released their first albums in 1983. One was considered the big four th of the thrash metal bands, the in your face, this is how we're going to... And that, listen, that's how so many of us approach what the, we think this calling of Christianity is. We're just slayers. We're just slay. No, the truth is, it's just a lifetime of tears for the fears we have. Trusting that God is doing something incredibly wonderful beyond 
our wildest imaginations. And he makes this distinction in verse 16 where he says, so don't lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are transient. But the things that are unseen, those things are eternal. See, most people measure what is significant about themselves. They measure the wrong things. You measure your brand, your success, your education, your status, your likes, your followers, your creativity, your novelty. That is the wrong thing to measure what is significant about you. Stop looking in the mirror or for the social media feedback loop. God is doing something you cannot always see. And if you are his child, it is far more real what he's doing in your life than the manufactured constructs we've invented. The outer self's wasting away. It's not physical hardships, hardships of any kind, suffering of any kind. Think from it, well, it's not anything I can do. I'm just average. I'm just ordinary. I'm just I'm distracted. I'm otherwise occupied. I'm nothing special. I'm past my prime. I hear people say that all the time. Here's the truth. God's not looking for people in their prime. He's not looking for people who are, you know, at their best. He doesn't need your prime. David, in the prime of his life, you know what he did? Made a mess. Moses, in the prime of his life, you know what he did? Made a mess. Solomon, wisest person that ever lived. He really was. He was a fool. But you got Caleb, you got Joshua. Those are twilight year guys. In fact, Joshua 13, God comes to Joshua and he says this, you're old. And I mean, if God comes to you and says you're old, you're old. You're old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. And he goes down a few verses and says, okay, now get after it. And the prophets, a lot of those guys were old. Nobody liked them. Paul, in the prime of his life, you know where he was? 14 years in obscurity, probably. And much of his ministry spent in prison. You're not looking for your prime. He's not looking for the best place in your life. He's not waiting for you to get everything all together in order so that you've got time to do it. Our eyes play tricks on us when it comes to what we think is important. I'll end with this. When I came to Bethel 15 years ago, I was 35 years old. In truth, I, I was just a little bit older than, this, than the whole church was, actually. On top of that, 
Many of the people that were a part of planting the church, they were still here. In fact, some of them, many of them still are here. We called them Old Bethel around here. Here's some perspective. I was in the, they hate when I say this, I was in the third grade when Bethel was planted. Now, if we took a field trip this morning over to the education building over here, and we pulled out the third graders, and I stood them in front of you and said, okay, in 25 years, one of these is going to be your pastor. Some of you might go, well, there might be a candidate or two in there. Listen, if you went back to my third grade Sunday school class, I'd have been the least likely kid you'd have ever picked. I was awkward. I had speech impediment. I I didn't even know what was going on. And if Bethel had known at the time what was in store for their future, they might have shut things down immediately. (laughs) I was in Mrs. Stubblefield's class. She and Miss McComas, they taught Sunday school groups from third grade to sixth grade. And shortly after I got out of elementary school, Mrs. Stubblefield died or moved to assisted living, and then, and then she, she died. She went on to her reward. But at the time, I remember, she was probably the oldest person I knew. And, and she'd been widowed for about 20 years. I found that out later. And I, the truth is, this is the last person on this planet you would ever call relevant. But she wanted nothing more than to teach kids what she understood about the good news of Jesus and the grace of Jesus. She was pastor of Brime, had a fixed income, which I'm sure was incredibly meager. No impressive credentials that I'm aware of, no accolades, not sure how many people even knew her outside of the church. She was not famous for any reason anywhere. But here's what she had. All the life that she'd lived with Jesus as her Savior. And she took her lifetime of life, that clay jar, filled to the brim with the treasure, and she poured through that. She poured it through all her joys and all her heartaches and all her pain and all her suffering and all her struggle and the very, very real present of, presence of the daily wasting away. She poured all of that through those things in the life of third graders. I look back and I see her crumpling hand drawing on the whiteboard. And I'll tell you, I have no doubt that the things that she planted in my life are the reason I'm here this morning. God was doing more than she ever imagined. Sure, more than I ever imagined. And while I was sitting in her class, God was here in Tyler, and there were 20 couples dreaming about this thing called Bethel and how God might use it and pray. And you know what? God was doing these things. Just do jars of clay. It's the mercy and the grace that Paul talks about gets 
spilled over into life after life after life. So more and more people come and they give thanksgiving and praise and glory to God. That's what you're called to. Mrs. Stubblefield was leader building leaders. That's what we do in the church. To what end right now are you being influenced by somebody? To what end are you influencing? I'm done. I'm over time. Let's pray. Father, love you. I pray you take these words that Paul wrote and you preserved because you inspired them. Father, you took all that frustration and conflict and hard relationship with the Corinthians. You poured your eternal word through Paul in those moments to write these things down so that 2,000 years later, we as a church would be encouraged that the life you've called us to matters, not because our life, because we're awesome clay pots, but because you have a glorious treasure which is just pouring into us, waiting for that to be spilled out on the lives of people around us. So, Father, help us to do that. Help us to embrace that as the reality all this that we endure and all the sloshing and the bumping and the hardship it's momentary light affliction compared to the weight of your glory forever we need your help to embrace that and so I pray you would help us to do that in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of your spirit